right, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, grab them and open them to Genesis chapter 38. Now, a quick show of hands, who's, who's been kind of cheating a little bit and reading ahead? Does anybody know where we're headed this morning? It's kind of a crazy passage for Valentine's Day, but we're going to do it uh, anyways. We're going to cover it. So Genesis chapter 38, uh, this is the story of Judah and Tamar. And if you have uh, any history with the Bible, you'll understand that this is, it's just one of those passages that you come to in Scripture where, um, honestly, when you're reading it, at least myself, uh, you get to the end of it and you're left with this question of, okay, God, why was this written down? Uh, This is not a flattering story uh, for anybody involved. This is an incredibly sordid story of unbelievable uh, sin, all kinds of of, of crazy events happen in this chapter, and yet God in his sovereignty decided that this needed to be recorded and added to the book of Genesis. And it's interesting because it comes uh, in the middle of the story of Joseph. If you remember, we're introduced to young Joseph last week in chapter 37. In chapter 39, we go right back to the story of Joseph, but right here in the middle of all this, in Genesis chapter 38, we take this small break to look at the life of Judah. And it's important for us to understand why this is recorded in the Bible. It is actually um, very important that this is recorded in the Bible. We know according to Genesis chapter 49, we're not there yet, but Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the Bible tells us that the scepter will not depart from Judah, that it will be through the tribe of Judah that ultimately Jesus Christ himself would come, not through the line of Joseph, but through the line of Judah. So that's why we're taking this small break today to look at the life of Judah so that later on we will be able to fully understand the greater redemptive story of God. Because if we don't take this break and we don't find these things out, there will be a lot of questions later on as to where did this guy named Perez Come from, and we're going to unpack this story this morning. And hopefully, by the time we leave today, we will see that Judah, while a flawed and sinful man, and honestly, a man that does everything in his power to jeopardize the covenant line, uh, it's still not enough to overcome God. God's purposes will be accomplished despite Judah's sinfulness and his failures. All right, and so that's good news for. You and I here this morning as well. So let's pray and then we will unpack this text together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that you'll be with us this morning as we walk through the the scriptures. And here in Genesis 38, God, when we read uh, stories, God, that honestly are are hard to to read, God, that we would uh, be reminded, God, of just how sinful we really are. And God, that we would ultimately be reminded of just how gracious you truly are to us. God, I pray that you would give me the words to speak, guide our time here together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we jump into verse one, I do want to remind you that there are some uh, difficult things to read in this passage. And honestly, if we were to make this into a movie, I don't think that most of us as Christians would be able to go see it. Um, It would probably be definitely rated R, if not a higher rating than that, if we have one, a mature audience on this rating here, but we're not going to shy away from it. 
We're going to read these verses because it's important for us to understand uh, just how sinful we are and how gracious uh, God is in this. All right, so let's begin our journey through this text, Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. It says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Let's just stop here for just one second. We're coming out of the context of Judah being with his brothers. They've just sold Joseph off into slavery. And what we see here in the text is Judah has now parted ways with his brothers. And now he's hanging out with an Adulamite that goes by the name Hira. And this is uh, important for us to remember here is he is about to begin a relationship with a, a man that uh, cares nothing about God and the things of God. And honestly, we could preach a whole sermon just on this uh, relationship right here. We don't have time this morning, but I do just want to point out that as we go through this story, this guy's name is going to continue to come up in association with Judah making all kinds of bad decisions. And so just as a good reminder for us, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. That's exactly what we're going to see here in Judah's life. He is no longer with his brothers. He's no longer concerned about the things of God. And we know, based on the rest of our study here in Genesis, that is a recipe for disaster, you turn your back on God and you start going the way of the world, then trouble soon finds you out. So, verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her. Very interesting here that we don't ever know the name of Judah's uh, wife here. It just simply names uh, her as the daughter of this man named Shua. And in verse 3 it says, She conceived and bore a son... And called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Hesab when she bore him. So this is important in our text for us to understand why is this giving us the genealogy of Judah here. Remember, it's setting up this idea in the book of Genesis that the line, the covenant line, will go through the family of Judah. So it's supplying for us here the fact that Judah does in fact get married and Judah has three uh, biological sons with his wife and it gives us their names. The first name is Ur, the second son's name was Onan, and then the third son was named Shelah. And so it's setting up this idea of which one of these sons will the covenant promise continue through after Judah. And so as, if we continue reading the text, it, it begins to answer the question for us very, very quickly. Look at verse 6. It says, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. This is the first reference in all of Scripture of a person being personally put to death by God himself. Because of Ur's wickedness. And we don't know what the wickedness is. The Bible doesn't give us that. But suffice it to say that it's probably some pretty, pretty terrible wickedness. Because we've seen the graciousness of God towards people over and over again 
here in the Bible, a graciousness that Ur does not uh, receive in the same way. He is so wicked, the Bible tells us that God takes his life from him. So very quickly, we learn that the covenant promise is not going to continue through Ur because Ur is gone, right? So look at with me, verse, uh, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So it's an unbelievable series of events going on here. Uh, Ur is put to death because of his wickedness, and Judah goes to Onan, the next brother in line, and he says, go in and perform your duty as a brother-in-law. We'll see this later on in the Bible, included in the law later on, where God would come up with this leveret marriage. That simply means that if a brother who was to be the heir of the family was to die before he produced an heir... His brother, or the next of kin, was to take his place, marry his widow, and produce for her children so that they would have an heir to continue on. So that's the context of what's going on here. Judah is telling Onan, go in and perform your duty as brother-in-law. You are to provide your brother Ur with, with an heir. But scripture tells us that Onan knows what this means. Onan knows that if I produce an heir for Ur, then that heir, this young child, would be next in line to receive everything from dad. And so he doesn't want uh, to allow that to happen. So the Bible is telling us that he's, he's going in and, and uh, performing acts with Tamar, but he's not fulfilling the duty of providing an heir because he does not want to have to share dad's stuff with this young kid. So the Bible tells us that because Onan was using Tamar in this despicable manner, that his wickedness came before the Lord and just like his brother, God took his life too. Those are unbelievably powerful statements here from the word of God. That they were so wicked in the sight of God that God would take their life from them. Look at verse 11. It says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is another despicable turn of events here. This is actually failure upon Judah's part. You see, when a wife would go into her husband, she would leave her family and she would become a part of her new family. So Judah is responsible for Tamar in this situation. But out of fear for his youngest son, Shelah, he sends her back to her dad's house uh, to be a widow until Shelah becomes of age. And if you're reading through the story and you're a dad in here, you're probably like, okay, I understand it a little bit, right? <laughs> like, I gave her my oldest and he's gone. 
Uh, I gave her my second born, and he's gone. And Judah doesn't necessarily know in the context of this story or the narrative that they've been taken out because of their wickedness. So he's probably under the assumption that uh, maybe she's doing something to these guys, right? She may be, she may be poisoning the, the stew or something. He doesn't know what's going on, but he knows that if he gives her his third son, that there's probably a pretty good chance that Shayla's dead too. And so he comes up with this idea to send her home until Shayla becomes of age. Verse 12, it says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. There he is again. And we know what happens. Every time we see this guy's name with Judah, bad things happen and terrible choices are made. Look at verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, uh, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and had not been given to him in marriage. So remember, Judah says, go live with your dad. When Shelah's of age, I'll call upon you and then I'll give you uh, to him in marriage and then Shayla will produce an heir for you, right? And so Tamar is living with dad. And in the context of this story, it tells us that uh, in the course of time, Judah's wife dies. So he is now a widower. And it says, uh, when he was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears and he met his friend Hira the Adulamite. Typically what would happen here is, is during the time of the shearing of the sheep, it was a time of celebration. It was the time of, of harvest, right? So you've, uh, you've much like with crops, you've, you've grown these sheep, you've taken care of the sheep, and now you are shearing them, and this is where your prophets would come. So this is a time of celebration. So they would typically go into the city, hang out with their friends, drink, and make all kinds of bad choices as we're about to see here. And so Tamar hears that Judah is coming to town. And Tamar also knows that Shelah is not a young man anymore. And she's not been given to him in marriage. And so Tamar begins to take matters into her own hands here in the story. So the scripture says that she wraps herself up. She takes off her widow's garments and she wraps herself up and sits at the entrance to Enam, the road to Timnah. Uh, what would typically happen here is, is if there was uh, cult prostitutes, as we'll find out here in the text, this is where they would uh, sit to be able to meet uh, people. And so she does. She meets Judah here in verse 15. It says, when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So we see here in the text that Tamar, taking matters into her own hands, has dressed herself as a prostitute. She's tricked Judah into this interaction. Uh, Judah, in the lustful uh, heart that he has, 
tries to go into her and he says, I will give you a young goat from my flock for payment. And she says, that's fine, but I want a pledge first, right? Like, I, I want something that's more than just your word. I want, I want something that I can keep until you bring me this goat back. And so she says, or he, she says, what I want is uh, your cord and your signet and your staff. We don't typically have signet rings or cords or most of us don't walk around with staffs. Um, that's just not a, a common thing anymore, but something that would maybe make more sense to us is, is our identification, right? We walk around with identification. These were identifying things for a person. They were so unique and so specific that it's, it's what a person would use to show that it was them, particularly the signet. It would have been Judah's mark that I am Judah. It's much like a driver's license that you could supply. So basically what Tamar is saying is, you can pay me with a goat, but you don't have a goat with you. So what I'm going to need is, is something to be left here so that I know that you're going to bring the goat back later. And so she basically says, give me your wallet and your keys and your social security card and all the things that identify you. Because she wants no doubt later on that Judah is the guy that she's with. And we'll find out why here in a second. So look at verse 19. When she arose and went away, taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name in that roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Verse 23, and Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat and you did not find her. So Judah is trying to make good on his word. He's sending the goat to Tamar. Of course, he's so uh, ashamed at this whole ordeal that he doesn't try to take the goat himself. But what does he do? He sends it with his friend. It's like the most middle school thing in the world uh, that you can see here. It's, it's like, you know, you go take care of this for me on my behalf so that I don't have to look bad and I don't have to be awkward in this situation. So his friend takes the goat to try to find Tamar. Of course, he thinks he's looking for a cult prostitute. There is no cult prostitute. And so he goes back to Judah and he says, I don't know what to do. I've searched for the lady and I can't find her. So Judah says, listen, let's just let this thing go. She can keep the signet and the staff and all that stuff because at this point, if we try to search for her anymore, it's just going to make us look worse and worse. And really, he was meaning himself, right? He was afraid that if I dig into this and I try to search her out more and more and more, all I'm going to do is bring more and more attention upon myself and people are going to know this shameful thing that I've done. So he says, let's just, let's just let this thing go and, and, make sh and maybe it'll, it'll just all go away. Look at verse 24. But about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So very interesting turn of events here. Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. And so she must have been involved in some kind of sexual immorality. And so based on the law, Judah is within the right to request her to be put to death. Remember, she is now actually Judah's responsibility, and she is currently betrothed to Shelah, even though Judah hasn't given him to her. And so he finds out that she has been sexually immoral, and he says, you know what we need to do here? We need to do the right thing. We need to put her to death for her actions. It's very interesting, though, that Judah himself was not uh, too keen on the idea of holding his own self accountable this sin. So it's a little reminder here in the text that oftentimes we hold other people accountable for sin at a much greater level than we hold ourselves. So he says, bring her out. She's to be burned. And Tamar, ready to cash in on this opportunity, says, you're right, I have been immoral. But I'm pregnant by the guy who owns these things. And we know whose things they are. They belong to Judah. And all of a sudden, Judah's attitude changes in the whole story, right? Maybe she doesn't need to be burned. I don't know. But she she throws it out in private so that he would see these things. It's very, very reminiscent of the boys asking their father to identify the robe of Joseph. If you guys remember from last week. They, they supply the, the robe of many colors, and they say, would you identify this and see who it belongs to? So Tamar is doing a very similar thing to Judah here, who just did this to deceive his own father. The deceiver is now being deceived by his own ways. And so she says, identify these things. It leads us to verse 26. Then a Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. This is a very powerful verse in this uh, text here. It, it actually demonstrates quite a bit of conviction on the part of Judah. It's not just guilty for the, for the sake of feeling bad or being caught, right? Oftentimes we feel bad once we're caught, but conviction is quite another thing. He realizes his own wickedness and own sinfulness in this story when he says that she is more righteous than I. He is admitting out loud that I have done a shameful, sinful thing. And so there's an element of repentance here that's very, very important for the line of Judah moving forward. Look at verse 27 through 30, and we'll wrap this text up. It says, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his his hand, and his name was Zerah. So what we see in this text here is she not only delivers one child, but twins are in her womb. Very reminiscent, again, of Jacob and Esau, right? The first 
the first one to stick out their arm, they tie a red thread around so that they would know that that one is the firstborn. But what ends up happening, again, all of this is tied to uh, birthrights and and heirs and covenant lines and things. And so this is important. We need to know which one is born first. So they tie the scarlet uh, thread around his wrist. But in a crazy turn of events, the brother is somehow actually born first. We know that this has to be a providence of God thing here. So the younger of the brothers that breaches the womb second is actually the one who we find out this covenant line of promise will continue on with. And if you remember from the very beginning, we've been trying to figure out through this story what's going to happen next if the scepter doesn't depart from Judah and Judah's oldest is dead, and Judah's second oldest is dead, and Tamar is never even given the third, then who is it that produces the son of the heir of the promise? We find out through this whole text that it's actually Judah himself. So it's just a powerful reminder through all of this that God is going to accomplish his gracious purposes even through the sinfulness And failures of man. And ultimately we know this is important because Matthew chapter 1. If you read with me the first three verses. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez. This is Jesus's genealogy that we're talking about here. So even through all the craziness that happens to this story, God God redeems this entire situation. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It shows us God's goodness and graciousness to us. So three things very, very quickly this morning, just to be reminded of from our text. Number one, God takes sin very seriously. God takes sin very seriously. As we even see in this text, we've learned that God is gracious and kind and long-suffering so that we would come to repentance. But that does not mean that God does not take sin very seriously. So as believers, we know that we do not have a license to go out and do whatever we want. In fact, if you look at this text and you look at Ur and Onan, what a powerful reminder. Like, would you approach sin differently This morning, if God gave you what you justly deserve for it on the spot like he does these two, I know I would. I think I would begin to take sin much more seriously in my life if I knew every time I sinned or committed wicked acts that God could call me out on the spot and take my life from me. You might ask yourself, why do these two get called out like this and not the other people in all these stories we've been reading? It's very reminiscent of Ananias and Sapphira. If you remember in the book of Acts, God works this way in moments where people and their wickedness are such a threat to what God is trying to accomplish that he removes them from the equation. It's what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. Everyone's a sinner. Why were they uniquely killed in that situation for their wickedness? Because their actions were an immediate threat to the baby church that God had just started. And so God removed them from the equation. Same thing with these brothers. The covenant line will continue on through Judah. And they were such an imminent threat 
to the future family of God that God removes them from the equation. And it reminds us through this whole story that God takes sin very seriously. Why? Because of his holiness. God is so other than us in this area. The Bible uses it in description of holy, 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 thrice holy. It's not even just God is, is, is a little bit better than us. He is way other than us with holiness. And we fall so short of his glory. So God takes sin seriously because of his holiness. He has to do something about our sin. The second reason is because of the cost, the cost of sin. Ultimately, you know, the cost was Jesus Christ and his life. So as believers, we can, we can never forget that, that sin, sin is a very serious thing because of what it costs. So many people have a terrible theology and just think that when you gave your life to Jesus, that he somehow just forgot about all of your sin. We think about things like as far as the east is from the west, like God just like, okay, I'll delete those files. That's not how it works. It costs something. All sin is paid for. It's either paid for by yourself or it's paid for by the, the giving of the life of Jesus Christ. But all sin is paid for. God just doesn't simply forget about sin. It all required payment. So that's number one. God takes sin very seriously. Number two, though, here's the good news. If you're a sinner in this room like myself, here's the good news of all this. There's no one too far from God or too sinful to experience the forgiveness that only he can offer. We look at this story and I ask myself, God, why these people? Why Judah? This is... This is the tribe that Jesus Christ ultimately comes from. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Like that's some kind of great thing. And Judah is a terribly, terribly sinful man from what we just read this morning. But the good news for Judah and the good news for all of us in this room is that no sin is too great for the grace of God. We can never out the graciousness of God. Now, that's not me telling you to go try. Let's not see if we can, but we know that we can't. So if you're sitting in this room this morning, and you'd be a person that says, man, I would love to give my life to Jesus Christ, but you have no idea what I've done. Let me just reassure you that this Bible, this, this whole thing is full of broken, sinful, terrible people that experience the unbelievable love and grace of God. And you can too. No sin too great. No one too far to experience the forgiveness that God offers. And number three is simply that God accomplishes his gracious purposes despite people's sinful actions and failures. I thought about that this week. God wants to use you if you're a follower of his, God wants to use you in your life. God didn't just redeem your future. He didn't just redeem your present. He also redeemed your past. What a powerful reminder to all of us in this room. That God wants to use you. And your past is no hindrance to him. God has been overcoming failures and sinful 
uniqueness of people for since the very beginning. We're reading it here in, in Genesis. That Jesus himself would come from a line of messed up people. If God can continue to use Judah, God can use any of us in this room. So let me challenge you with that today. You may be sitting here and going, Lord, I don't know. I've done too much stuff. You have no idea what I've done in my past. Listen, God, God isn't so concerned about all that stuff. You can experience his forgiveness and his kindness and his grace, and God will use you in unbelievable ways in the future. You know, some people with the craziest past, the most sordid past, the, the, the most difficult, challenging stories in their past are the people that God uses the most. And like I said in the beginning, God will redeem your past and he'll begin to use you in incredible ways. So if you've got things that you're shameful of or things that you wish you never happened in your, in your past, and God can use those to accomplish great things in your future if you'd be willing to let him use you in big ways. Let me pray for us this morning and we'll begin our time of response. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, even a passage like this that we come to this morning that leaves us sometimes with more questions than answers, God, it's, it's good for us to be reminded, Lord, that you are not hindered by our failures and our mess-ups. And God, while we know that that's not a license to go out and do whatever we want, it at least gives us encouragement and allows us to take these heavy burdens and weights off our shoulders, God. Realize that you've not called us have to be perfect on our own you know we can't be it's why you've given us your son Jesus and I pray that you'd move and work this morning if there's somebody in this room that needs to give their heart and their life to you I pray that they would respond in obedience ask for forgiveness of their sins and follow you with their life and we pray this in Jesus name amen